I'd like for us to turn tonight to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Luke, chapter 8. And I want to share some thoughts with you tonight about a man named Jairus, who had a very memorable and instructive encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ during the Lord's earthly ministry. So we'll be looking here at Luke chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 40 to 56. And what I'd like for us to do is to read straight through this section once, and then we're going to go back to the beginning of the section and kind of walk through it a little bit. I'll bring out some general observations here from the passage, and then we're going to end with some specific lessons and applications that I think we can take away from this account. So starting in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official, Jairus's house, saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he, that is Jesus, came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help in this time, that you help us to shake off the tiredness and the weariness of a long day and to fix our attention, our minds, our eyes, our hearts on you. We pray you'd speak to us in this time. I pray that we would go from this meeting amazed in the same way that Jairus and his wife and the disciples were amazed at what you had done in this account. We pray for your presence here now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, I'd like for us to go back to the beginning of this section and just kind of walk through it slowly. I want to bring out a few things. Uh, I am going to take some time to go through this in a little bit of detail, uh, just as a general overview first. 
And I'm doing that because this, the applications that I'm going to make won't have as much power behind them unless we see some of these uh, general truths first from the passage. So starting in verse 40, you'll notice here that the account begins by saying that as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. Earlier in Luke chapter 8, Jesus had already been ministering in this same area, this area that was known as Galilee. But one day, Jesus and the disciples got in a boat, and they left Galilee for a while. And it was during that time that they were away from Galilee that Jesus calms the sea. Uh, And it was also during that time away from Galilee that he delivers the Gerizim demoniac, which is in the passage right above this one, verses 26 to 39. And then after delivering the demoniac, Jesus returns to Galilee here in verse 40. And by this time, his fame had spread quite a bit. So when he returns to Galilee, he is met by a crowd of people who had been waiting for him to come back to the area. And one of the people who had been waiting for him was a man named Jairus. Verse 41, there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official, literally ruler. He was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. According to the text, Jairus was an official or ruler of the synagogue in the region of Galilee. And the synagogue, of course, was the place where the Jews in that area would go to worship. And as far as I can tell from my research, Jairus' job as the ruler of the synagogue was to basically oversee the worship services at the synagogue. He would be the one who was responsible for appointing the people who would publicly pray during the meeting, who would read from the scriptures during the meeting, and he would be responsible for choosing people and asking people to come and to preach the sermon at the synagogue that particular week. So basically, he was the one who oversaw the running of the synagogue worship meetings. He was the ruler of the synagogue. But here's the thing I want us to get from this. As the ruler of the synagogue in Galilee, Jairus would have held something of a place of prominence in the Jewish community there. And in fact, in one of the parallel passages, it doesn't even say he's a ruler of the synagogue. It just says he was a ruler. Uh, So that's the idea that he held some place of prominence and importance there in the Jewish community at the place where he lived there in Galilee. Everyone would have known who he was because of his association with the synagogue. They would have known there he's the ruler of the synagogue. On top of that, he was probably better off financially than the average Jew in Galilee would have been. Not super rich, but comfortable because of his position working there at the synagogue. And according to verse 41 then, this synagogue ruler comes and falls at Jesus' feet and begs Jesus to come to his house. Why? Luke tells us in the very next verse, For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Now I want to read between the lines here a little bit. Uh, The text itself is kind of vague on the details, but I think there are some tentative conclusions that we can draw here based on observation and based on our understanding of Jewish culture. Now, follow me here because there is a point to why I'm bringing these things out. First of all, because of how the text is worded, I think it's likely that this little girl was not simply Jairus' only daughter, but was, in fact, his only child, okay? Do you see the distinction? 
It's not like Jairus had ten other sons and one daughter. I think the text means to say that this was not only his only daughter, but his only child. The phrase in verse 42 is that he had an only daughter. And the Greek word that's used for only there is actually the same word that's used in other places to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That phrase, only begotten, in John 3.16, is the same word that's translated only daughter here in Luke chapter 8. The idea, of course, being there in John 3.16, the idea is that God only has one son, right? God only has one child. And that same word then is used here with regards to Jairus' daughter. In other words, she is his only daughter, his only child. Also, supporting this, I think, when Jesus finally gets to Jairus' house, maybe you notice this, it doesn't say anything about there being other children there at the house. Uh, she's the only one. There was no other children mentioned later on in the passage when they finally get to Jairus' house. And it seems to me that if Jairus did have other children, they would have been allowed in the house to see the raising of their sibling. Uh, But because there isn't any other children involved, it makes me think that she's probably, likely, his only child. Now, still reading between the lines a bit, The second thing I want to bring out here is that in Jairus' time, it was common and even desirable for Jews to have larger families, right? After all, the Old Testament itself encourages this, doesn't it? Psalm 127, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full. Of them. Full quiver, lots of children, right? For a Jew, having many children was a sign of God's blessing, and so Jews, especially in the first century, tended to have larger families. But not Jairus. Have you ever thought about that? He and his wife only had one child, and This child, this daughter, at this point, was about 12 years old. What does that imply? I think it implies that Jairus and his wife knew a lot about the heartbreak of pregnancy struggles. Given their Jewish background and their natural desire as parents, Jairus and his wife would have certainly wanted more children after the birth of their daughter. Are you following me? But whether because of miscarriages or infertility, they were unable to have any more children. She was 12 years old and an only child. How many miscarriages had she suffered? How many years of infertility would they have suffered through since the birth of their daughter? Now, why am I bringing all of this up? I'm bringing it up here because I want you to really feel what Jairus is feeling when he falls down at the Lord's feet. It's easy to read right over this because we know how the story ends. 
But all Jairus knows is that his beloved daughter, his only child, is on the verge of death. And since her birth, Jairus and his wife have known nothing but heartbreak in the area of children. So he is not going to let his daughter die. He is terrified, he is desperate, and he knows that he only has one chance. Only one person that can help. So he falls down before the Lord asking for help. So Jesus agrees. Maybe Jairus was surprised, I don't know, but Jesus agrees to accompany Jairus back to his home. But along the way, they're interrupted by a crowd and by a woman with a hemorrhage. And so sandwiched right in the middle of Jairus' story here, we have this account of the healing of this woman with the hemorrhage in verses 43 to 48. And it happens right as Jesus is on the way to Jairus's home. And we're not going to take the time to get into this particular account in detail, but one thing I do want to remind you of is that Jairus is right there as Jesus heals and speaks with this woman with the hemorrhage. You see, it's easy to forget that as you read through here, but Jairus would have been right by the Lord, standing right by the Lord Jesus Christ as he's dealing with this woman that had the hemorrhage. Jairus would have been there observing and listening as Jesus heals and then later speaks with this woman. And it was actually while Jesus was speaking with the woman that the news came to Jairus that his daughter had died. And let's pick it up right there in verse 49. While he was still speaking, that is Jesus, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. Do not be afraid. Notice that any longer is supplied. Literally, just do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. Now, (laughs) how in the world could Jairus do that? Don't be afraid. Only believe. How? His one and only child has just died, and Jesus is telling him to not be afraid. Jesus is telling him to just believe, and his daughter would be made well. How could Jairus do that? How could anyone in that situation do that? How could he possibly trust the Lord right after getting the news of his daughter's death? Well, for one thing, remember what Jairus had just witnessed. Jesus is not asking Jairus to blindly trust him. Jairus had just witnessed and watched Jesus heal a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, and then Jairus got to listen in as Jesus deals gently with this woman and encourages her by saying, that her faith had made her well. He heard that. And it's only after Jairus sees and hears all of that that the Lord tells him to not be afraid and to believe that his daughter would be made well. In fact, I almost wonder 
if Jesus didn't purposely stop and speak to this woman so that Jairus could be encouraged by what he overheard? I wonder. I mean, after all, it's not like Jesus had to stop. The woman was already healed before Jesus even called any attention to her, right? She'd already been healed by touching his his cloak. He could have just gone on. She was healed, taken care of, could have gone right on. But he doesn't. He stops, and he speaks to this woman in the presence of Jairus. It's almost as if the Lord knew that Jairus was about to find out that his daughter was dead, and so he draws out this encounter with the woman for the sake of Jairus' encouragement so that Jairus could see and hear the things that he needed to in order to continue to trust the Lord even after his daughter had died. I mean, we can't say for sure, obviously, but I wonder. I wonder. seems possible. Whatever the case, Jairus receives the news that his daughter was now dead. But the Lord encourages him by saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And then verse 51, When he, Jesus, came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. Now, in a minute, I'm going to have us turn to a parallel passage, because if we don't, we could easily get confused by verses 51 to 53. Why do I say that? Well, look again at verse 51. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now, let me ask you something. According to this verse, who were the only people that were in the house with Jesus at this time? Who were the only people in the house? Parents and the three disciples, right? Everybody see that? The parents, Jairus and his wife, and Peter, James, and John. They were the only ones in the house with Jesus at this time, according to verse 51. Now, next verse, 52. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep. Now the next question, who was weeping and lamenting? Well, it seems like you have to say it's the same people, the disciples and Jairus and his wife, because after all, they were the only people in the house with Jesus at the time. Are you following me? So it seems like you have to say they were the ones who were weeping and lamenting. And then lastly, look at verse 53. And they, again, same they, they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. Again, the question is, who was laughing at Jesus here? Well, you have to say that the ones who were laughing are the same ones who had just been weeping, which we just said had to have been Peter, James, John, and the parents, right? Again, they were the only ones in the house with Jesus, so it must have been them who were weeping and then later were laughing at Jesus, right? It seems like that's what it's saying. It seems obvious. Now, hopefully, though, that strikes you as a bit odd. The disciples and Jairus and his wife are laughing at Jesus? It seems a little strange, doesn't it? And the reason why it seems strange is because that's not actually what happened, And we can see this clearly if we turn to a parallel passage in Mark 
chapter 5, as a side note here, this is why it's so important, especially in the Gospels, to always read the parallel passages. Always read the parallel passages in the other Gospels. Because the Gospels are four separate accounts, and if, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of the same accounts. But they're separate accounts a lot of times from different angles, different perspectives, different eyewitnesses reporting things. It's just like if you had three people all see a car accident, and then you went and asked all three people, well, now what did you see? Their stories would be different depending on where they were at, where they were standing, depending on what they were doing at the time. They might say slightly different things. Same thing with the Gospels. They're coming at it from different perspectives and different angles a lot of times. You've got to read all the accounts in order to get a full picture of what was happening. So here in Mark chapter 5, the parallel passage, starting in verse 35, While Jesus, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, And he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, that is, these people who were loudly weeping and wailing, entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. You see, Luke kind of compresses things down and gets the timing a little bit different doesn't contradict it. It's just a different way of reporting the event. He kind of telescopes things down a little bit. Mark gives a little bit fuller picture. Entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. They, that is, again, this crowd of people that were in the house, weeping and wailing, they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother, and his own companions, Peter, James, and John, and entered the room where the child was. Now, this should help explain things a bit. This passage makes it clear that the people who were weeping and then laughing at Jesus a moment later were not Jairus, his wife, and the three disciples. There were, in fact, other people inside the house at the time when Jesus arrives. There was a crowd of people in there weeping and wailing over the death of this girl. And it was these other people that Jesus sees making a commotion. And then in verse 39, it says, Entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. So it was this crowd of people who were the ones that were laughing. And so Jesus boots all of them out of the house, this crowd, (laughs) He boots them out of the house and then continues on to the girl's room with Peter, James, John, and the parents. Can you see how things are fitting together here? That's the situation at the moment. Now, turn back to Luke chapter 8, and we'll finish up here and then bring out some lessons. Luke chapter 8.
in verse 54. So this is after Jesus kicks out this crowd. Verse 54, Jesus, he, however, took her by the hand, the daughter, and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Notice that just as with the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, Jesus raises this little girl by speaking. Lazarus, come forth, right? Here in Luke chapter 8, child, arise. Child, arise. And when the Creator speaks, the creation obeys. Luke says that she got up immediately. (laughs) There's no hesitation. Let there be light. And there was light. Child, arise. And she got up immediately. There is infinite creative power behind the spoken word of God. And then finally, Luke tells us that her parents were amazed, which is probably a slight understatement. In Mark's gospel, it says they were completely astounded. I like that way of saying it. They were completely astounded. Even though Jairus was there when the woman with the hemorrhage was healed, he was still completely astounded to see his own daughter rise up from that bed. You see, it's one thing to be in the presence of a miracle performed for someone else. It's another thing to experience a miracle yourself right in your own home. And that's what Jairus had experienced. In closing, then, a few applications, a few lessons that I think we can draw from this account. And I just want to briefly mention five here tonight, five brief lessons or applications that we can make from this passage. First of all, first application, it doesn't matter how much wealth, power, or status a person has, at some point everyone will encounter problems that they can't fix on their own. At some point, everyone is going to encounter a problem that they can't fix. I mentioned earlier that Jairus was probably financially comfortable, stable, and had some level of status and influence in the community where he lived because of his job as the ruler of the synagogue in that region. But when death came knocking at his daughter's door, None of that made any difference. It didn't matter how much money he made. It didn't matter what his status was. It didn't matter what his position was. None of that made any difference. Because no amount of money and no amount of status and no amount of power or influence could heal her. So what did Jairus do? He went to the Lord. He did the only thing he can do. He went to the Lord, which is exactly the thing that we ought to do when confronted with seemingly impossible situations. Where are you going to go? To the doctor? Yes, but what happens when they can't help you? 
to the bank, money's only going to go so far. Where are you going to go? He went to the Lord. And that's where we need to go too. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing. So that's where you go. You go to the one for whom nothing is too difficult. Psalm fifty fifteen. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. It's a promise of the Lord to call upon him in this day of trouble. When you've run out of answers and when you've run out of options, call upon him. So that was the first one. No matter how much wealth, power, status, everyone is going to run into problems, run into things that we can't fix. (laughs) question is where do you go when that happens? Where do you go? Application number two, the Lord only helps those who come to him in humility. He only helps those who come to him in humility. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue. That was his title. He was the ruler of the synagogue. And again, he had some kind of social status and clout amongst his peers because of that. But even so, when he comes to Jesus for help, he comes on his knees. It doesn't matter if he's the ruler of anything. The ruler of the synagogue comes on his knees before the ruler of rulers. Just because Jairus was considered important in the eyes of the world, he had no more pull over Jesus than anyone else had. No more. If he wanted help, he had to come in humility, just like everyone else did. (laughs) And it's the same for us today, isn't it? And this should be an encouragement to us tonight, because it means that everyone in this room has it within their power to receive help from God. Everyone here. doesn't matter what your bank account is. doesn't matter what other people think of you. doesn't matter what you do for a living. doesn't matter anything. Everyone here has it within their power to receive help from the Lord. Because what is the only thing required? The only thing required is a humble asking. That's it. A humble asking. Check your pride at the door and humbly ask. That's it. Second Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Humble, you see, humility before him. The Lord only helps those who come to him in humility. But, and this is encouraging, the flip side of that statement is also true. The Lord helps everyone who comes to him in humility. Everyone. Everyone. Do you know what you never find in the Gospels? One thing that you never find is someone who humbly went to Jesus asking for help and was turned away. Look, next time you read through the Gospels, you never find someone who goes to Jesus and humbly asks for help and is turned away. You never see it. Everyone who comes to him in humility receives help. Everyone does. Everyone. 
Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. James 4.10. It's a promise. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Everyone here tonight has it within their power to receive help from God. Humble asking is all that's required. And everyone can do that. But you're going to have to check your pride. And that's where it gets difficult. The question is, do you really want help or not? Jairus did. And so he came on his knees. Third application. If we want help from the Lord, we're going to have to submit to his timing. Jairus was desperate here. And he goes to the one person that can help him. And you can almost feel the hope spring up in his heart when the Lord agrees to go with him back to his house. Right? It's like, there's a chance. He's coming. There's a chance. My daughter might live. But then what happens? Jesus is detained. He stops to help the woman with the hemorrhage. Now, what must that have been like for Jairus? Put yourself in his shoes. What must he have been thinking? He already knows that he's cutting it close as it is, and then Jesus stops. Talk about a trial. Jairus is forced to stand there and watch Jesus help someone else while his daughter lay dying at home. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, there's no sense denying it. That's hard. It's hard to watch the Lord help other people around you while you stand there feeling forgotten. Have you ever felt like that? Lord, I've been praying about this for months, and nothing's happening. And that person, they just started praying about their need, and you've already answered them. What's going on? You ever felt like that? I mean, I think we all have, haven't we? We've all been there. And Jairus was there too. But what did Jairus do? He submitted to the Lord's timing. He could have gotten upset and left in a huff. Well, Jesus is going to stop. I'm just, I'm just going to leave. Find somebody else or something. And I think if he would have done that, his daughter would have never been raised. I think that's true. If Jairus would have just taken off and left, I think that would have been the end of it. But he sticks by Jesus and he waits it out. Because that's what faith does. You see? It's a worldly kind of faith that comes to God like a genie in a bottle and demands that he answer our every request right now. He's not your genie. And if he has to, he will teach you hard lessons like Jairus had to go through to teach you that. That his timing may not be your timing. But his timing is best. 
True faith submits to God's timing and keeps on trusting that the Lord is good and knows what he is doing, even when his timetable doesn't match ours. That's what true faith does. It keeps on clinging. It keeps on cleaving. It keeps on trusting. Romans 10.11, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Literally will not be put to shame, disappointed or put to shame. That doesn't mean you won't experience disappointment in the short term. (laughs) We've all been there. Let's be honest. But it does mean that the person who continues to trust the Lord, even through the disappointment, will be repaid in abundance, whether in this life or the next. No one, no one will ever regret trusting the Lord. Never. And anyone here tonight who's a Christian can tell you that, can testify to that. Disappointment, yes. Trusting through the disappointment, glory. Eventually. But glory. Ask and keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking. Remember those words are in the present tense there in Matthew 7. And you will find, knock and keep on knocking and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. It will. In his time. And we've got to trust his timing. Application number four. Almost done. Application four. Mockers miss out on the miracle. Mockers miss out on the miracle. And I'm thinking here, of course, of the crowd that Jesus booted out of Jairus' home after they laughed at him. Mockers miss out on the miracle. Another way to say it is that they who laugh at the Lord are denied the opportunity to experience his glory. That's what this was. It was Jesus manifesting his glory by raising this girl from the dead. And mockers and scoffers and laughers miss out on that. Now, I've got to be honest here because I'm kind of cheating a little bit on this one because in Mark's account that we read earlier, you get the feeling that Jesus kicked the crowd out because they laughed at him. You kind of sense that a little bit as you're reading through that version of the account. But according to Matthew's account in Matthew 9, Jesus actually asked the crowd to leave even before they laughed at him. Okay. However, I think at the end of the day, you can see how both accounts are true. Jesus probably started by asking the crowd to leave nicely because <laughs> they were making a commotion. And then when they laugh at him, that's when he puts them out, according to Mark's gospel. He puts them out. There's a little force there behind it. (laughs) He puts them out of the house. But however it shook out, I think the application still stands, because the bottom line is that when it came time for the miracle to happen, none of the scoffers were allowed in. Mockers miss out on the miracle. Jesus displayed his divine glory by raising this girl from the dead, and not one of the laughing multitude was allowed to have a part in it. And I think we see here a good illustration of Matthew 7, 
6, where Jesus said, Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus wasn't about to let the pearl of the revelation of his glory be trampled underfoot by a mocking crowd. He wasn't going to allow that. So he raises the girl in the presence of only a select few and then tells them to keep it to themselves. It's like this is a treasure that's just for you. This is your miracle. The lesson here is to beware of mocking God. Beware of laughing at the Lord because you will end up missing out on opportunities to be amazed and completely astounded by his power and glory. The person who laughs at the Lord isn't hurting the Lord. Okay, I can guarantee you that. He's a pretty secure guy. He can handle it. The person who laughs at the Lord is hurting himself because the Lord is not likely to reveal his glory to a person like that. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds some, a little, no. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, none. Not a little, but none. So the mockers miss the miracle. Last application, number five. Even in the midst of great acts of divine power, Jesus doesn't forget the tender little details. And I love this kind of stuff. Notice again in Luke 8.54, it says he, Jesus, however, took her by the hand. You see the picture? He's holding her hand as he says to her, child, arise. It reminds me of the, the healing there of that leper where it says he touched the leper and then healed the leper. He didn't have to do that. He could have healed that leper without touching him. Do you ever wonder how many years had gone by before that leper had felt the touch of another human being? He was unclean according to the law. He couldn't be touched. It may have been years before he had ever felt the touch of another human being until Jesus comes along and he touches him and then heals him. See those tender little details. Same thing here with this girl. He holds her hand and then says, child, arise. He didn't have to do that. It's an expression of his tenderness. And then after the girl is raised, did you catch this? Jesus instructs her parents to give her something to eat. (laughs) Again, it's just a tender little detail. It shows the heart of the Lord here. Her parents are standing there with their mouths hanging open in astonishment. And Jesus says, you know, don't forget to feed her now. (laughs) Right? She's going to be hungry after going through death and back. Don't forget to feed her. He cares about those practical little details. And I love these things, again, because they speak to us about the kind of Savior that our Savior is. They speak to us about the kind of God that our God is. Even in the midst of showing his power, his might, his glory, in the midst of great acts of power, he doesn't forget to show tenderness. In fact, it's like he goes out of his way to show tenderness. 
He's not just a miracle worker. He doesn't just zap people with a bolt of lightning and then moves on. He holds their hand. He touches the leper. He says, give her something to eat. Tenderness of the Lord. Her parents were amazed. (laughs) I just love that. Utterly astounded, completely astounded. Well, amen, that's all I had.